right, well, uh, thanks everybody for coming. Um, and uh, welcome also to uh, those watching on C-SPAN or online. I'm Ben Friedman. I'm a research fellow in defense and homeland security studies. Uh, here at Cato, uh, although I noticed on the uh, web description for this event it said a senior fellow, so I, I accept a promotion and I assume it comes with a raise. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> um, and uh, we are here today to talk about the Navy and the surface fleet in particular, and one reason for that is that we that do defense and foreign policy here at Cato uh, are what I'd call relative navalists, that is that we want to have uh, a smaller uh, U.S. military and have fewer wars. Uh, but uh, where we do have uh, wars, we like uh, for the force to come from the sea uh, and not stick around that long. So we'd like to give uh, a bigger portion of the smaller uh, defense budget to the, to the Navy. Um, and with that, I'll, I'll introduce the speakers uh, in the order I believe uh, that they're speaking. Um, if, if you see our first speaker, uh, Ben Freeman, quoted uh, in the newspaper, Please assume uh, that thanks to uh, the strange likeness and name and expertise that the reporter meant to call me. Um, I was planning to tell him that there wasn't enough room for both of us in uh, DC, but then I, I noticed that he does uh, good work, great work at the, as a national security investigator at the uh, project on uh, government oversight, POGO. So I allowed him to stay. Um, he uh, specializes in, in uh, Department of Defense personnel issues, weapons procurement, uh, lately focusing, as we'll hear, on the littoral combat ship. And uh, he also uh, looks at the impact of lobbying on uh, by foreign governments on U.S. foreign policy and has a book coming out on that subject, I believe, soon. Soon, right? Yes. Yes. Um, and uh, prior to joining POGO, he got a Ph.D. in political science at Texas A&M. Uh, and then we have uh, Eric Labs, uh, who has worked since 1995 uh, at the Congressional Budget Office, where he is a senior analyst for Naval Weapons and Forces. And he specializes in procurement, in budgeting, uh, and the sizing of the forces for the Department of Navy. And he's, he's used to the, the uh, cameras uh, from his vast experience in congressional testimony. Um, his, his reports on naval shipbuilding uh, and programs are sort of required reading uh, if, if you want to be uh, up to date on the Navy. Um, and he, he got his uh, PhD at MIT, uh, where he was uh, part of the world's finest security studies program, right? Absolutely. Yes. Um, and then we have uh, Robert Work, who has been undersecretary of the Navy since the start of the Obama administration, just about. Uh, in that capacity, he serves as the deputy and principal assistant to the secretary and handles the day-to-day -day management of the department. Um, he served uh, 27 years as an officer in the Marines, uh, ultimately working as a military assistant to the Secretary of the Navy during the Clinton administration. Uh, and uh, after that, uh, he worked uh, at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, first as a senior fellow for Maritime Affairs and later as vice president for strategic studies. In these positions, he worked on uh, uh, defense strategy and programs, DOD transformation, uh, and maritime affairs and produced a lot of writing that ended up in my piles uh, next to Eric Labs's writing. Um, and he has a, uh, a Master of Science in Systems Management from USC, a Master in Science in Space Systems Operations from the Naval Postgraduate School, and a Master's in International Public Policy from uh, the Johns Hobson's Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, which gives him about one fewer Masters than we normally uh, want for our Cato speakers, but we made an exception in this case. Uh, and then uh, last, we have uh, Chris Preble, who is the Vice President here at Cato for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies. And he's the author of uh, three books. The most recent is The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free. 
And he also has another book that he was lucky enough to co-edit with me. Um, and uh, before joining Cato in, in 2003, Chris taught at St. Cloud State University uh, and Temple, where he got his PhD in history. And uh, he, uh, most importantly for today's proceedings, was a commissioned officer in the US Navy and served on the USS Ticonderoga from 1990 to 1993. So uh, with that, I'll turn the mic over to Ben Freeman. Thanks, Ben. Thanks to Cato for having me, too. And uh, thanks to all my fellow panelists. I'm looking forward to talking about the uh, surface combat fleet. As some of you know, I and a lot of my colleagues at POGO have been investigating the littoral combat ship. And the littoral combat ship is going to represent roughly a third of the surface combatant fleet. And so I think it's a very important issue to, to talk about, especially today, in, in light of these issues that we brought forward. We found some troubling issues with the Navy's first littoral combat ship, the USS Freedom. It's a Lockheed Martin-built ship. Working with whistleblowers close to the program, I and my colleagues learned about equipment failures, cracking, and design issues. Some were old issues or had been previously reported, but many others were not. Like a stern door, which is designed with a gap in the bottom big enough to slide your hand through, or the rampant corrosion throughout the interior of this four-year-old ship. The Navy called these first-of-class issues, but these never should have been issues in the first place. Shipbuilders told us, members of the House Armed Services Committee have told us, this is Shipbuilding 101. Thanks to a bipartisan push, the House version of the NDAA has an amendment in it requiring the GAO to investigate these issues and the program's sustainment strategy. We're confident that the Senate will also support this investigation. My hope is that this study and future analyses will further clarify a number of questions I and many others have been asking about the LCS program. When I first began looking at the littoral combat ship and working with these whistleblowers, I, I, I learned about so many problems that one of the first questions I asked was, do you think the Navy should still use this ship? Their answer was no. And actually it was an emphatic no with an expletive in front. <laughs> I was told the ship should be used as little more than a training vessel. And the idea that it would deploy to Singapore at, at that time, it was going to de deploy to Singapore this year, was laughable. And even now, with the pushback to Singapore in 2013, they're still not convinced that that's a good idea. While the Navy's fixed the cracks we reported, the ship continues to have issues, it continues to have cracking problems. The cracking problem itself is not fixed, even if those cracks we identified were. Equipment failures continue to plague the ship, we're told including engine failures. So after learning about this, the question that I kept asking was, well, we know the other version, the other variant, the general dynamics, Austal variant, we know that has some problems too. It's got a lot of corrosion issues. People aren't convinced that that ship's ideal either. So which variant is worse? Now, we've been asking this question since the Navy and Congress agreed to keep buying two variants, the so-called dual award strategy. Eventually, the plan Initially, the plan was to do the, what was called the down-select plan, where we're going to have these two teams build two ships, have them compete, pick the best ship. We decided not to do that, went with two variants. Unfortunately, I haven't gotten my hands on any LCS2 whistleblowers, and to the dismay of some, to the uh, happiness of others. Uh, but based upon the information we have available, I think the Lockheed variant's the weaker of the two variants. However, there's a lot of caveats to put on that. There's a lot of information we still don't know about either variant. Uh, and, and in fact, we're not sure the DOD knows. The DOD's own testing office has reported they haven't received the te any testing or evaluation reports 
formal reports, I should say, from the program testing offices. The Navy says they're working on the reports. So maybe even they can't answer the which is better question. Hopefully we can at some point. What we do know for sure is we're buying a lot of these ships without really knowing what we're getting for our money. My fellow panelist, the Honorable Bob Work, just a year ago said that we're not exactly sure how it will finally operate in the fleet. A good question to ask then, and one I'd certainly like answered is, why do we have 12 of these ships under contract if we don't know the, the testing results or we don't know how the ship's going to operate in the surface combatant fleet? Another good question to ask is, should we be purchasing two very different variants? I've yet to hear a convincing argument for why two variants of the ship are better than one. Sure, it's better for Lockheed and General Dynamics, but for taxpayers, uh, for, for a Cato crowd, which is concerned with a uh, waste of taxpayer money, I'm not convinced it's a good idea. Also, if you're concerned with military readiness, I'm also not sure it's a good idea. LCS-2 recently joined LCS-1 in San Diego. So for the first time, we're seeing these two ships side by side. I got as much of a critic as I am uh, of this program. I got to say, that's pretty cool to see these two ships out there. <laughs> However, when you, when you see them side by side, you really see how different these ships are. And it's hard to imagine two ships that do the exact same mission. They're supposed to do the exact same thing, looking more different. We got LCS-1, which looks like a traditional ship. It's a monohull ship. Looks like a ship we would all think of. And then we have LCS-2, which is a tri-hull, menacing-looking tri-hull. This thing looks like it has Darth Vader at the helm. <laughs> very, very intimidating-looking ship. But they both do the same exact thing. But the difference is, the, the, the important thing is that the differences go far beyond the appearance. And they're going to be very costly down the line. Ships designed to operate with a small crew. However, the crews of one variant won't necessarily be able to operate the other variant. And that's going to be costly. Similarly, your maintenance, your spare parts, and all those associated supply chains, they're going to be different. That's going to up cost too. There may also be issues with the compatibility of the mission modules. We don't know yet, but there could be. All of which drives up cost, and it can decrease readiness. In short, if these ships can both do the exact same thing, why should we pay more for two? Another important question is whether or not the LCS is a combat ship. This is a question we've been debating a lot lately. Even though combat is literally its middle name, I'm not convinced the littoral combat ship is actually a combat ship, at least not in the way that we traditionally think of a combat ship. According to the Navy, the LCS is going to be operating as part of a networked battle group and will only conduct independent operations in low threat areas. If that's true, then why do we need it at all? I like to believe our Navy keeps the seas safe. Not that our Navy only goes where the seas already are safe. If the LCS has to track subs or clear mines near the Iranian coast, for example, it's not going to be in a low threat area. And it may not have the carrier strike group there if things go south, unfortunately. Moreover, the LCS is not currently prepared to fulfill its mission, even in low threat environments. Development of the mission modules, which I previously mentioned, has been slow at best. Currently, we're looking at a mine hunter that can't really see or stop mines, and we're looking at a sub hunter that doesn't have any real meaningful torpedo detection. Basically, I liken the LCS to a Swiss Army knife. It can do a lot of things, just can't do a lot of things well. With that, I'll hand over uh, the rest of my time to the rest of the panel and I guess the rest of the surface combat fleet. I want to thank uh, Ben and Chris Pubble for inviting me here today in the Cato Institute. Um, 
I want to say at the outset that uh, the views I express here today are my own, and they are not those of the Congressional Budget Office or the U.S. Congress. I'd like to frame my remarks uh, with these three questions. One, can the Navy afford its shipbuilding plan, including that for surface combatants? Two, is the Navy buying the right ships? And three, if there are negative or uncertain answers to those questions, are there alternatives? Now, the short answer to those questions are, can the Navy afford its plan? Probably not. Is the Navy buying the right ships? In truth, I don't know. But there are some questions that have been raised about them. Three, are there alternatives? Yes, but most of them are not cheaper than the Navy's current programs, though it could be argued that there are some that are better fits. And let me discuss each one of those issues in turn. Can the Navy afford its shipbuilding plan? Over the last 30 years, the Navy has spent about $16 billion a year for everything in its shipbuilding accounts. That's new construction, refueling of submarines and aircraft carriers, uh, outfitting and post-delivery, all of that sort of thing. The Navy's 2013 shipbuilding plan proposes to spend, on average, over the next 30 years, $16.8 billion a year for new construction alone. So then when you're finished adding in all the other things that go into the shipbuilding accounts, you're talking about $18.5 billion a year per year over the next 30 years. Furthermore, of that money, a lot of it is going to be loaded for beyond the fit-up. The average for the total amount of money being spent in the shipbuilding plan under the Navy's budget over the course of the five-year fit-up is $13.7 billion a year. So while that average is $18.5 billion, for the years beyond the fit-up, it's higher even still. Um, furthermore, we don't know yet sort of how the whole sequestration scenario is going to play out, but regardless of how that plays out, um, it, it seems clear to me that whether you get a change in the budget or whether sequestration takes effect, that still may have a, a further impact on, on the amount of funding that's going to be available for Navy shipbuilding. So now, is the Navy buying the right ships? Uh, the Navy's plan over the last few years has made a lot of changes to the, to the surface combatant forces. It uh, truncated the DDG-1000 program at three ships. It canceled the CGX. It has restarted the DDG-51 line. It, has, it is proposing to modify the DDG-51 line as it currently exists to a Flight 3 configuration with an improved radar, more power, more cooling, to perform the missions that the CGX was going to perform. Um, it, has it has maintained with a fair degree of consistency over the last few years 55 LCSs uh, in that shipbuilding program. Now, a recent GAO report has raised some questions about whether the, the DDG-51 Flight 3 is, going to, is, is sort of the right program for the future. Specifically, um, it's a very long report. It's a very detailed report. I commend anyone to read it who's interested in these issues. But some of their bottom line concerns are, one, that it may cost more than the Navy thinks it's going to cost, and it raises questions about whether it's going to have the appropriate uh, margins of, of stability and growth and power and cooling that, it, that a, a ship of this type, which is supposed to last for 40 years, is going to need to have. Uh, the LCS, moving to the LCS program, now that ship has been taking uh, a lot of wraps these days, as, as Ben just sort of pointed out, um, from mission to concept to construction to design. I'm not really going to talk about the construction issues, um, I, not because they aren't important, but because I don't find them conclusive for the class as a whole. I'll, I'll let others sort of talk about those in more detail. And the concept of the LCS is an innovative one. It's a mothership with remote offboard systems. In many ways, we can, we can have a long discussion on that subject alone, but that's probably the future of the Navy in many ways. So I would be hesitant to cancel a program that has sort of pursued the first serious excursion down this path of, of a mothership with remote systems. Nevertheless, as I'm sure Bob Work will talk about, the Navy is going to have to prove this concept, and they're going to have to prove it at sea in an operational environment. 
I would like to make a few observations about the mission and design. At the outset of the program, the Navy justified the ship uh, would perform countermine, anti-submarine warfare, and counter-surface warfare, fast attack craft killer, in littoral waters. The Navy didn't actually do a sort of analysis of alternatives ahead of this program. It, 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 it performed what my counterpart at CRS, Ron O'Rourke, has called an analytic virgin birth. Um, and for reasons that are still not, at least not clear to me, it's not clear why it needed to be you know, 40 or 50 knots in terms of its speed. And because of the power and the speed that have been built into the ship, it has a very limited range at high speeds and has just average range that's operated at very slow speeds. And it was very much justified as a, as a critical wartime asset. However, over the past two years, the Navy's justification for the LCS has evolved more to peacetime missions that the Navy spends nearly all of its time doing anyway. Maritime security, engagement with allies, port visits, exercises, sanctions enforcement, and the like. In doing so, it will free up cruisers and destroyers and amphibious ships that currently do a lot of those missions, and it will be better at doing them because the LCS is far less intimidating to work with than, and more akin to the types of ships that other navies have. Uh, recently, even the CNO has said that he would be hesitant to, to send the LCS into a robust anti-access environment um, in wartime, so, but he would be much more inclined to to keep the LCS because it will help prevent a war. It will help prevent a war because it will be performing those engagement, partnership, and exercise type missions, build a robust set of alliances and partnerships with other countries, and thereby deter, reassure allies, and deter war in the first place. So are there other alternatives to the Navy ship plan? To, one alternative would be, that could actually be cheaper than the LCS, is that, that if you think that we're going to be take, buying 24 LCSs total, you've got the two 10-ship block buys that are occurring right now, you've got the four that we've already uh, appropriated money for and are under construction, you're going to have 24 LCSs before the Navy's going to have to come to its next, next major decision point. And if it's going to be using these ships a lot for these maritime security and partnership exercises, you could uparm a joint high-speed vessel. That's currently a $185 million ship. You could put some, you know, some weapons and some combat systems on that. You could come up with a, a ship that would be suitable for those same sorts of uh, missions that the LCS is, is they're stating they're going to be doing um, for less money than what the LCS plus the mission module is going to cost. That's one possibility. That is a cheaper option. Another option would be looking at the Coast Guard's national security cutter. Um, in his 2008 report, uh, U.S. Navy charting a course for tomorrow's fleet, the undersecretary in a former life uh, made the argument that he would buy nine maritime security frigates for, for precisely doing these kinds of missions. Now, to be sure, in that report, he still wanted to buy the 55 LCSs that were part of the Navy's shipbuilding plan, but he found that the nine maritime security frigates for partnership and, and exercise building, merit sanctions enforcement, and things like that would be additive and a useful contributor to the, to the Navy's fleet. However, this is not a cheaper option. Uh, the National Security Cutter is a more expensive ship than the, uh, than the LCS with a mission module on board, even before you make some changes to the National Security Cutter that might make it somewhat more suitable as a Navy warship rather than a Coast Guard ship. Nonetheless, it might be a better fit because it has on the order of three times the range and endurance of the LCS. Finally, in terms of the large surface combatants, if, if you don't find that the DDG-51 Flight 3 is, is, is a compelling story, uh, there are not a lot of good alternatives to that. You could go back to a CGX design, but then you just get back into the same problem we had before with too expensive of a ship. You could use the DDG-1000 hull. It would have sort of the growth margin, the power, the cooling, the stability all built into it already. However, it's going to be a more expensive ship than the DDG-51 Flight 3. So where does that leave us? 
There is what I call the Iron Triangle of Navy shipbuilding, or frankly, this refers to any sort of weapons procurement. Uh, if you find you do not have enough money to implement your program, you have three choices or some combination of them. You can spend more money, you can buy cheaper ships, or you can buy fewer ships. I think the spend, spend more money option is probably not going to be viable for a long time to come or certainly be very difficult to achieve. The Navy has gone down the path over the last five years of looking to buy cheaper ships, what I've just talked about. And certainly the LCS itself was an effort to be able to buy large numbers of a, small, of a relatively small and inexpensive combatant. Uh, the contract prices for the LCS, as they currently are under the 10-ship lock buys, even with a $100 million uh, module on the ship, gets you a $550 million ship. It's not a bad deal in relative to sort of the history of Navy shipbuilding programs. But you go back to the question of whether it's the best fit for the missions it's going to be doing most of the time. So perhaps the result will be buying fewer ships. And then the question becomes that I think we need to talk about, and is its own subject of discussion, is how small a fleet is too small. Whatever we discuss today, this, to be, this should be the question that looms in the background, that if we're headed for a smaller fleet, how small will be too small to, to implement the U.S. national grant strategy and uh, security strategy? Thank you very much. Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here this afternoon with our panelists and to talk about the future of the U.S. Navy surface fleet and the LCS in particular. Before you can understand the LCS and before I can really talk about it, you have to understand fleet design. This is a radically different fleet design of any U.S. battle force that's ever been created and certainly different than any battle force in the world and the world has ever seen. So I want to take just a couple seconds to walk through the different generations before I talk about the LCS. Now there's a myth, as I said, that today's fleet is nothing more than a smaller version of the Cold War fleet. And nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. From 1945 on, the United States Navy, probably more than any other service, went all in into the guided munitions regime, in which most of the munitions being fired at sea would be guided weapons. And as Wayne Hughes said, who's one of the best tacticians the Navy has ever produced, and one of the best operational uh, analysts, said really all this is about is about a new weapon, a well-aimed long-range missile to take advantage of our sensing and communicating technology and vice versa. Now the first generation, each of these generations had a specific operational problem. Everything is about going after guided weapons, but each of the generations came at it a little bit differently. In the first generation, we had 6,500 ships. 6,500 ships in August 1945. Within, ten, within five years, we were down to 634. Now, a lot of those ships were decommissioned, but a lot of them went into the reserve fleet. It was a blessing and a curse. We could take ships out of the reserve fleet if a Korea pops up, but there was no way Congress was going to give you an awful lot of money. So the two key operational problems we tried to solve in the first generation was nuclear attack on the Soviet Union, and you had to get your carrier battle group close enough and therefore, what you needed was to keep the Soviet bombers away from the group. And therefore, you needed a whole bunch of radar pickets because you were going to do them air to air. You didn't have guided munitions. And then we really feared the Soviets, like us, got copies of the German Type 21 and Type 26 submarine, which was revolutionary at the time, and pretty much made obsolete all of our de destroyer escorts of World War II. So we had to cope with large numbers of those. So the priority was to develop the guided weapons and then just go after a couple things. 
In this generation, we only built 40 new combatants. 40 new combatants, that's it. And they didn't have any guided weapons, with the exception of some homing torpedoes. Most of them was either Weapons Alpha, which was this, gosh, this giant depth charge uh, gun, and the 5-inch 38, which replaced the old 5-inch 34. 40 new construction combatants, that's it. And we had 67 conversions of World War II ships. Now, the second generation, what happened was, now we're faced with nuclear-powered submarines and anti-ship cruise missiles coming in mass raids. So the entire focus of the fleet was to get more AAW, anti-air warfare, capability into the fleet. 121 new construction second-end ships. Emphasis on battle force-capable ships that would go with carriers and protection of shipping ships that would go with convoys. It was a high-low mix. The protection of shipping ships didn't have to have the big top-end systems. Just like the LCS today, would they have gone in under the high-intensity combat? Of course not. Fleet design called for a high-low mix, which was complementary. We had 16 Gen 1 conversions where we took old cruisers and we put missiles on them. We had all sorts of different conversions of Gen 1 ships and Gen 0 ships, and we took 140 World War II destroyers and we put them through a big thing called the FRAM, the Fleet Reliability and Maintenance Program, and tried to make them capable. Third generation now, we are focused on war at sea against the Soviet Union that is also all in in the guided weapons warfare regime. High-intensity warfare. There was going to be a collision of these battle networks. We only built 106 third-gen ships, about 55 battle force-capable combatants, the high-end, and 51 protection of shipping combatants, high-low mix. You never, ever, ever buy every ship to go into full-up battle. You can't afford it. It's not worth it, and you don't need it. We did a couple uh, second-gen ships. We had a thing called the New Threat Upgrade. We were trying to make those ships a lot better. And all of the World War II ships were gone now except for four battleships. And we're going to all digital combat systems. We introduced the vertical launch system. We introduced all sorts of new combat systems like the Squeak 89 ASW platform. This fleet is all in the guided weapons warfare regime, keel up ASW, anti-submarine warfare, and AAW, anti-air warfare. Now, over these three generations, the Navy lost interest in small combatants. The World War II Navy was a small combatant Navy. We built 774 patrol torpedo boats, PT-109. We had steel-hulled submarine chasers. We had all sorts of gunboats. We were a small combatant Navy. A very, very small percentage of our 6,700 ships at the end of World War II were large combatants. But in the first first generation, we found out that small ships can't carry the guided weapons. You need to fight the bad guy. So we had 13 Dealey destroyer escorts and four Claw Jones. They were failures. They only stayed in the fleet for about 15 to 16 years. In the second generation, we tried something smaller, the Asheville gunboats. Built 17 of them. Their average year of service was only eight years. There just wasn't a need for them. They were actually created because of the Cuban Missile Crisis. They were going to do interdiction, but they wound up doing all sorts of other smaller missions. And then in the third generation, we built six hydrofoils, really high-speed, low-drag ships, really cool-looking, very highly armed for their size. They had an average year of service of only 11.5 years. 
So what I'm trying to tell you is we come to the fourth generation, the end of the Cold War, and the U.S. Navy has essentially decided that the smallest combatant in the fleet should be about 4,000 tons. That's the size of a good-sized frigate. So the fourth generation from 90 to 91, the key operational problem now is land attack. It's all about rapidly defeating an enemy's invasion. So what you need is a lot of capacity for a lot of guided missiles. And you wanted to connect to the joint battle network because in generation three, we were doing everything independently at sea. We divested all combatants that either didn't have the Aegis combat system on it or had vertical launch system. We standardized everything. It was enormously beneficial. Same propulsion train throughout the fleet. Same combat systems throughout the fleet. We improved our battle networking. And we gradually said we're going to go even bigger. We were going to get rid of all frigates. We built 13 patrol coastal ships. We're going to get rid of them. We built 13 because the special operations forces said they needed them, but it turned out to be too big for them. So we were going to give them all away. And we were going to go to a 14,000-ton destroyer so that the smallest fleet, we were going to 116 combatants, the smallest ship in our battle force would have been about 9,000 tons. It would have been excellent at bombing an enemy or stopping an invasion. But as far as engagement with all of the other world's navies, it was really a one-note navy. So the fifth generation, here's where we are. Key operational problem is we are now faced with land-based anti-access area denial networks that have naval components. And you have to fight your way in to do what you need to do. You also want to maintain cost-effective forward presence throughout the globe. How do you solve those two problems? We go to a high-low mix. Multi-mission combatants, I call them large battle network combatants, are cruisers and destroyers with big vertical launch missile cells, big high capacity, they are focused on the big, big fight. Those are multi-mission ships. They carry all the capability with them. And then you go after smaller multi-role ships. I like the Swiss Army knife, but this thing does it a lot better than the Swiss Army knife. It's a multi-role system. Every single ship in the fleet is self-deployable. We used to have mine warfare vessels that you'd chug along at 12 knots. You couldn't get them to the fight. You used to have all these different things. Every single ship is now self-deployable. Open combat systems, be able to change them quickly, improve battle network, and a new emphasis on what I'll call second stage systems, manned and unmanned off-board systems, UUVs, unmanned underwater vehicles, USVs, unmanned surface vehicles, UUVs, unmanned underwater vehicles, RIBs, rubber, uh, rigid hull inflatable boats, helos, UAVs. So the surface fleet supports our fleet design, which is a total force battle network, which is just a series of capability containers from small to extra large, multi-role at the low end, multi-mission and multi-role at the high end, extremely versatile. You pour any type of capability you want into these ships. That's our fleet design. Now, I say we have second stage systems. A lot of people look at the LCS, and I'll break the people who don't like the LCS down into three general groups. The first group are the people who just don't understand this fleet design. It's different than any the Navy has had. It's different than any Navy that's ever lived or ever fought. It's totally different. So they just don't get it. They just don't accept what I've just told you. Okay? We can debate that. We're very confident that we're on the right path here. 
The second one are the ones who focus on the problems of the LCS in its early part of the program. Heck, we know it had a problem. It was a disaster when we took over in this administration. There are all sorts of problems in the way we produced it and designed the ship, but we think we're well, well, well on the way on getting it on track. And then the third ones, third group of people are people who just don't like the ship itself, the design flaws in the ship. And some of the people in the first group, the people who just don't get fleet design, they want to see a frigate. The LCS is not a frigate. We don't need frigates. If we needed frigates, we would build a frigate. Other people want to see gunboats. Well, we just lit the contract for the first six of the Mark VI patrol boat. It's a second-stage system. It's got four remote weapon systems on it, 225s, 250s, 50-caliber machine guns. You can put anything on this thing you want, 80 knots, I mean 40 knots, 80 foot. And it's a second-stage system because everything we're building in this fleet is either self-deployable or we'll take it with us. And this is how we would get these patrol boats to the fight. We take them on our amphibs. So let's talk about the literal combat ship very, very quickly, and then we'll have some questions. The literal combat ship represents the return of a small combatant in fleet design. I have no doubt there are a lot of whistleblowers because they don't understand what a small combatant does to the Navy. There are so many people in this Navy who believe that if you are not in a frigate or a cruiser or destroyer, that it is not a warship. They are dead wrong. They are dead wrong. It's about 3,000 tons, and I believe CNO Vern Clark was brilliant when he picked this size. Because if you take a look at the Asheville and the PHM and the Dealey's, small combatants don't survive in this Navy. It's got to be big enough to be able to have the margins to do something with. 3,000 tons. Multi-role platform emphasizing second stage systems. It was so different that we built these two ships on R&D money. These are R&D platforms. Of course there are problems in it. We built them to identify the problems. We're now working the mission modules. We just had a very successful test on the mine warfare module. It will do better right now, that module will do better right now than the MCMs that are in the fleet. And when we go to the Spiral 2 and the Spiral 3, it will just get better. Our anti-surface module, it's designed to fight these small boats. People who don't think this is a warship are nuts. On day one, in the Gulf, this ship will be fighting against the fac Act threat underneath the air defense umbrella of the broader fleet. It will engage the surface engagement zone out to the limits of its 57-millimeter cannon, about five nautical miles. No ship is getting past that, that thing. It is an unbelievably capable system. Then you have a dual engagement zone where helicopters and missiles from the ship yeah, we lost the inlows, the non line of sight missile. It was terrible. It was, would have been a great system. But the beauty of this ship is you don't have to redesign it. We'll just pick another missile. It's going to take us time. That's causing us a problem. I admit it. And in the outer zone, you're going to do air. This ship is designed to fight as part of the fleet on day one in that environment. It's designed to sweep mines on day one in that environment has unlimited growth potential. You can make any type of module you want. So is it survivable? Look, if it goes up against a frigate or another cruiser destroyer that has a lot of Ascoms on it, no, it's not survivable. Tell that to Commander Ernest Evans in 1944 
off Samar when he found himself in a destroyer up against battleships. That is not a good situation to be in. But did he turn away from the ship because he looked at the manual and said, I'm not a warship? No, he turned into the fight. And that's exactly what commanders from this LCS will do also. Cost. There is nothing out there that can match the cost of this ship. Period. End of story. I'll be anxious to listen to you tell me I'm wrong. But if you can find a ship that can do what this ship for a smaller price, we'd be buying it right now. Why should we buy when we don't know what we're getting? Oh, my goodness. We, we built 13 dealies and four Claude Jones, and we had no idea if they would be able to do the bot job. We found out they didn't. We stopped building them. We sent ships to sea with the Tartar D system before it worked. We sent the SQS-26 radar before the, into the sea before it worked. You put the stuff into the hands of the fleet. They tell you how to fix it, and then you do it. You say, what do I want the ship to do? You design it for a mission. Can it do the mission on day one? Not necessarily. Every single ship we've ever built evolves, and this ship is made to evolve. Finally, why two types? We're going to have about 27 of each type. Think of the Leahy and the Belknap cruisers. They were essentially pretty much the same hull form, but they were different. One was a double-ender ship. One was a single-ender ship, meaning one had air-to-air -air missiles, air, uh, surface-to-air missiles on both ends of the ships, whereas one only had one. We only built nine of each. 27 ships in a class is more than you need to gain uh, efficiencies. But let me tell you what we're doing. We're going to single down to a common combat system so that any sailor on any vessel can go to the combat system of the other. We're singling up on the same type of communication, C4I, Command Control and Communication Suite. The communicators will be able to go from one end to the other. Essentially, every, and the, of course, the mission module guys can go on any ship. They don't care. The only people who will be different will be the hull machinery and electrical guys. That's it. This is going to be an extremely effective platform for our fleet. Do we know everything about the vessel? No. Are there going to be problems? Yes. The problem that uh, Ben was talking about, that POGO and uh, Aviation Week came up with, they identified 62 things. We went into it. We actually created a matrix. 25 of those 62 are just flat wrong. They're incorrect. And not one of the other issues that were highlighted by Ben or by Aviation Week and Space Technology, we were unaware of, and we don't have a plan of action. Ben mentioned the crack in the LCS-1. Wow, we noticed that. There was water coming through the crack. It's already been fixed on LCS-1, and the design fix in LCS-3 has already been there. This is a learning Navy, and it is also a Navy that is unafraid to say we made a mistake. So as we take this ship to sea, and we see what works and doesn't work, we will fix it. And if we can't fix it, we will stop building it. So from my perspective, the fleet design is an awesomely capable design. The LCS is just the ship that we need to fit this design. There are a lot of skeptics. This ship is, first, it's a small combatant, so almost everybody in the Navy is going to be skeptical of it to begin with. It has to prove itself. Has a new manning scheme, got to prove it. Has a new maintenance scheme, got to prove it. We have to make sure it works the way we want, got to prove that. And we have to do the mission modules. But ladies and gentlemen, I will tell you right now that this ship will sail in the fleet. It is a warship. It will be ready for war, and I guarantee you the sailors who fight this ship 
are going to be darn glad they're on it when the time comes. I look forward to your questions. <clears throat> Thank you. Thanks to everyone for attending. Um, those of you watching online at C-SPAN and on Cato.org, um, I want to thank our conference staff and also my colleague Charles Zacabe, who's been studying the Navy with me for several years now, I guess. Charles will tell you that I've been wanting to do an event uh, or something, a paper or both, on the Navy for a long time. I'm really pleased with how, this well, how well this came together. I can't think of anybody who is more qualified than Undersecretary Work to speak to these issues. I thought that was an excellent presentation. I'm thankful to Ben and Eric for being here. Um, see a number of fr uh, familiar faces in the audience, uh, including a couple of my classmates from the George Washington University NROTC unit. Yes, it's true. Uh, I'm a Navy partisan. Okay, I'll admit it. Um, I'm from Maine. Okay, I, I don't know how I could. I, I, you know, this is the home of Bath Ironworks and Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, right? And when I was young. Uh, Brunswick Naval Shipyard. So how can I not be a naval partisan? Oh, and by the way, my name is Preble, right? So as you know, the, the, you know, the, the cards were stacked in a certain direction from the very beginning. So I'm not going to be, uh, I'm not going to pretend otherwise. Okay? I am a Navy partisan. Um, and I think it's particularly important for those of us who care so deeply about the Navy to have this kind of a discussion, okay? Because if we don't scrutinize every single one of these decisions, and yes, I admit, we're making the under's job harder. He's, he's used to that, right? That's, that's, that's what he gets paid the big bucks for, right, Bob? That's what it's all about. Very big, but we, very big. We need to have this kind of discussion, because if we as Navy partisans don't have that discussion, others are going to have it for us, including people who don't have the same kind of commitment to the surface fleet that we have. So I, that's how I come to this issue. Um, Little combat ship, little combat ship. The LCS has had problems. We know about this. Um, look, I know, a, I know a thing or two, a few things, about deploying on a first-in-class ship, okay? When I reached the Ticonderoga in March of 1990, the boat had been in the water for nine years, and we were still working through some of the problems associated with being the first ship in the class, okay? Um, and I understand this can take time. Um, and, and I, I take the underwriter's word. They have responded to these issues. They believe they've addressed these issues. They believe they have a, a plan for getting this program on track. But I just want to dwell for a minute. I don't want to dwell on the specifics of what was raised about LCS-1. I, I want to look past that. I want to say there are alternatives to the LCS. And in that respect, I do respectfully disagree with undersecretary work. Eric talked about the national security cutter. Ben Friedman and I, yes, it's true. We wrote a paper a couple years ago making the case for frigates or a successor to the frigates. Um, we think that there is an alternative that could achieve a similar mission at less of a cost. But I think I have seen a, a bit of a change, even just in the last few months. Okay, I think we're in the minority. I think there were many people in the surface community to Undersecretary Work's comments who had a lot of skepticism about this program all along because it was small, because they wanted a big ship with big guns. Okay. And there's been a lot of skepticism about small ships for a long time. But I think a lot of people are coming around to the position, this is what Commander Salamander on his blog wrote last, last week. The sad truth is we are well past killing this program. Though we will bemoan the opportunity cost for decades, this will make it to the fleet. The big questions now are, one, how will we manage, the how will we manage to optimize a suboptimal platform in a manner that give the fleet commanders the best possible platform given its limitations, 
and how do we ensure we employ the platform in a manner that does not unnecessarily imperil our sailors. LCS will, for many yapping from the cheap seats, I'm still quoting here, be the gift that keeps on giving, unquote. Well, you can guess I'm the one yapping from the cheap seats, okay? Um, are there aspects of the LCS program that deserve a second look? I want to amplify a point that Ben raised. Do we really need two different types? Should we, read, should we revisit the decision to go with two very different designs and not a down-select? It was supposed to be a down-select. This was supposed to be a competition. And at the 11th hour, the Navy decided otherwise, and Congress affirmed that. Um, again, I want to emphasize, I am not opposed to a dual-buy in principle. I deployed on a ship that was a dual-buy ship, right? And when I was on Ticonderoga and another Aegis-class cruiser pulled up behind me on the pier, I didn't know whether it was a Bath ship or an Ingalls ship, Pascagoula ship, until I walked on the quarterdeck. Okay? And I guarantee you that most people, including many surface people, if they don't have all of the hull numbers memorized, the same thing goes with the DDG-51s. I ask you, if you don't know, if you haven't memorized all the hull numbers, can you look at two Burke-class destroyers side by side and say, that's a Bath destroyer, that's an Ingalls destroyer? Okay? Well, anyone, anyone at all, who looks at LCS-1 and LCS-2 side by side knows these are different ships. Okay? So what does that mean? I'll, I'll tell a sea story here, okay? When I pulled up, I'm getting ready to go on deployment. I could walk down the pier to any CG-47 class. Didn't matter. L uh, vertical launch or the, or the rail launchers like the original uh, ship that I was on. Walk down the passageway, same passageway. Unbolt from the deck, uh, you know, from the bulkhead, the valve that I needed to deploy and march that in the street. Now, I understand that this, uh, the, the statute of limitations on doing this has expired, right? So no one's going to get thrown in the brig for doing what? Yes, I admit, I wasn't supposed to do that. But I was the main propulsion assistant. I was responsible for getting a ship underway. I cannibalized new construction valves once, okay, in order to make sure that my ship was ready to deploy, okay? So those kinds of advantages of a dual buy, yes, but the same ship. Another case, there is the training pipeline. You know, when I, um, we got ready to deploy, I had two second-class petty officers in my, in my division, main propulsion division. These were two of the finest enlisted men I'd ever dealt with. Okay? In fact, one of them I know for a fact made senior chief, and I think the other one made chief. They came on my ship. They had never deployed on a Tyco before. They came from a Spruits-class destroyer. They qualified as a watch officer in about a week. And they were an engineering officer of the watch, an EAL, by about midway through that first deployment. Okay? Never on a Tyco. The, the, the training pipeline below the water line was identical. Okay? And some of the other training for the other systems, of course, we had the same guns on the Tyco as they did on the Spruance class destroyers. So I'm worried about that. <clears throat> now, yes, this is a problem that you can solve with more money. Okay? There's going to be some you know, training uh, that's unique to the vessels. And I want to commend, I, I am sympathetic to the idea of having multiple crews assigned to a single ship, I, I, or several crews, and you can have some, some you know, I understand that. It makes sense to me. But where does the training pipeline, how does the training pipeline support that? Can you truly deploy a guy who starts out in LCS-1 to LCS-2 to LCS-6, as opposed to from LCS-5 to LCS-8? Okay? That's my question. Other concerns. Manning. Okay, this has been raised. These vessels are supposed to be minimally manned, okay? 
As I understand it, so a core crew of 40 was the original design. As I understand it, we've learned this from, the, from operating in the fleet. It's undermanned. Okay, now my understanding is the Navy is considering increasing the core crew perhaps by 50%, maybe 60. There's some speculation that they're looking uh, at increasing the crew size far more than that. Okay? But when you do that, you start to trade away some of the core advantages of LCS vice the alternatives, including the FFGs. So my bottom line is we're trading um, dozens of warships, small warships. Again, I'm not opposed to small warships, not at all. Okay? We're trading away dozens of small warships, including the Perry class frigates, uh, in lieu of a fewer number of FFGs when you count the other small warships, the FFG will, the, uh, the LCS will replace, the minesweepers and the, and, the, and the PCs, with a vessel that has a single mission in mind, not a multi-mission, you know, modular, yes, if the modules work the way they're supposed to, uh, but that's, and, and less survivable in a combat setting, and again, I think Undersecretary Ward made a uh, compelling case for the high-low mix. Again, I'm not opposed to that in principle. Um, while we're on the subject of trade-offs, trading off one vessel against the other, I have to, I have to say it. Uh, you know, we just, we've made this decision to build very large aircraft carriers, 100,000 plus tons, you know, at least 14 billion to build the next one. I, I, I'd be shocked if, the, if it actually comes in at 14 billion dollars. That's about seven DDG-51s by my simple-minded math, or about, what, 28 LCSs? Am I doing the math right? Is that right? About right? Um, and the, the Opportunity costs aren't just in the surface fleet, okay? Uh, we also have an opportunity cost of SSBNX uh, versus all surface combatants. We're planning to build 12 of the new ballistic missile submarines, the Ohio-class follow-on. The target average cost of $5.3 billion in this year dollars. Uh, two months ago, the Navy estimated that the lead ship in the program will cost $11.7 billion, and last year, CBO estimated that the lead ship would cost $13.3 billion. I'm curious, uh, Eric, if you guys have revisited that yet, because that number to me looks pretty daunting. Okay? And why do I dwell on this in a, in a forum that's supposed to be about the surface fleet? Because these are opportunity costs. If we decide to invest so much in that SSBNX, we are giving up some in the shipbuilding budget, unless you believe, and I don't think anyone here on this panel believes, that the shipbuilding budget is likely to increase by 50 or 60%. Okay? So I think it is important to dwell on these numbers and compare and weigh the cost of each against the other. And also, let me be very clear, I say this not because I'm a swell, not because I have something against submarines. It's because I just don't think we need 10 or 12 ballistic missile submarines to have a credible deterrent. In fact, another program that Ben Friedman and I are working on here at Cato is talking about moving from a nuclear triad to a nuclear diet. It's a lot of the work we're doing. Even if the submarine leg survives, if it turns out that we don't need all three legs of the triad, even if it does survive, I don't think it's obvious that these boats need to be nearly as expensive as current projections. So let me close with a somewhat different, a bigger picture beyond what's already been said here. Because I want to say a few things about the Navy surface fleet's mission. And it's really an age-old question. Are we going to remain the world's policemen? Is that the object? Is that the goal? Is that what we're trying to do here? A key component of that mission is reassurance. Discourage other countries from defending themselves and their interests. That's what that's it. That's what that means, reassurance. Okay? They are reassured. They are secure. They do not need to do these things. Here in Washington, there is this notion it's generally better to have one country providing these services because other countries wouldn't do it as well as we could. Or they might try and they would mess it up. Okay? And it's better for us to be doing these things. They might grow too capable. We wouldn't like that. 
So look at how this works in practice. We have a recent case in the South China Sea, the Scarborough Shoal between the Philippines and the, and the Chinese. And the Filipinos expect that we will defend their territorial claim against completing, competing claims by the Chinese. Uh, the United States, chiefly via the U.S. Navy, will also do this, we're, we're expecting, for Taiwan, Brunei, Vietnam, Malaysia, others. They're not worried because the U.S. Navy has their back. In the context of the surface fleet, then, and the LCS specifically, we're building a Coast Guard cutter for other people's coasts. That's what this is. Okay? And other countries are choosing not to build anything at all. Now, they have grown accustomed to this. They've sheltered under our protective umbrella for a long, long time. They've become very dependent upon the U.S. Navy. And they're not worried. And some people in this town... Indeed, many people here in Washington like it that way. They like being the world's policeman. They like being the guarantor of global security. That's another buzzword. Or the global force for good. That's the U.S. Navy's latest recruiting slogan, right? And if others are less inclined to defend themselves and their interests, that's okay, as far as many people in the foreign establishment here in Washington see it. I see things differently. My colleagues here at Cato see things differently. We doubt that the benefits of global primacy are outweighed by the cost. We dispute the claim that globalization depends upon a single superpower to police the commons and enforce the rules. We here at Cato think it would not be such a bad thing for other countries to contribute more to global security, but we doubt that they will do so so long as the United States taxpayers are picking up the tab and so long as the U.S. Navy especially is on the front line of every potential dispute. Now, we are lonely but not alone in this fight. Uh, polling data shows that most Americans want desperately for others to shoulder the burden of defense, defending themselves and their interests. One poll found that 79% of Americans think that we spend too much money defending others. This is by pollster Scott Rasmussen. 79% think we spend too much money defending others. A mere 4% think we don't spend enough. Recall, too, that then CNO Admiral Mike Mullen proposed just before he ascended to the chairmanship, a 1,000-ship Navy. He envisioned a system in which the United States would remain the world's preeminent military power with the naval projection power second to none. And yet he also envisioned that other countries would have navies, would be capable of defending themselves and their interests, and would contribute to global security in a measure that was consistent with their interests and their capabilities. Our, our current plans seem to be headed in exactly the opposite direction. And I would hope that it isn't too late to revisit that decision as well. Thank you. Uh, all right. Uh, before we get to questions, which we'll do uh, before the hour or at the hour, um, Ben, uh, you were very brief. Uh, do you uh, want to um, say anything in response to all the other comments briefly uh, before we go to questions or save it for then? Oh, fine. We'll, we'll, we'll save for questions. Okay. Uh, then I'm going to ask a couple questions. <laughs> um, uh, number one, this is uh, 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 for Bob Work. Um, alternatives to uh, LCS uh, were mentioned. Eric Labs mentioned the number. Um, uh, if the Navy um, were uh, forced uh, by the Congress to uh, not buy uh, LCS or the buy was stopped uh, prematurely, what, what would be the Navy's kind of first choice as an alternative? Well, if we were told to truncate the LCS, the first thing we'd do, obviously, is to continue building uh, the Arleigh Burke line until we could get, uh, we could understand exactly uh, 
what we wanted to do. The na national security cutter, when I wrote that, as Eric Lab said, um, I was writing it as if you could afford it, uh, you could do it very s simply as a presence ship or what I call the National Fleet Station ship. But we simply can't afford that type of uh, niche capability in the Navy. And the National Security Cutter is not the ship. It can't operate the mission modules of an LCS. And it would be good for sailing around. Uh, but the LCS is very good for sailing around, too. So the National Security Cutter, we don't believe, is a viable option. Uh, there's really no uh, frigate on the market that we could probably build. I'll, I'll defer to uh, Eric Labs. We've, uh, we've talked about this a lot. Let's assume that you could build a good frigate for $750 million. All of the costs that you hear from overseas, they don't put in the robustness in a combat ship that we do. So let's say you might be able to build one for $750 million. It would take several years to design, several years to build. If we were told to stop the LCS uh, vessel right now, it would be disastrous uh, for the U.S. Navy. Make, make no sh uh, bones about it. The size of the fleet would shrink drastically. So we don't really see anything that's available on the market that would be automatically better than what we're building now. Okay, uh, second question for anyone who wants to answer it uh, before we go to audience questions. Um, we're talking about the future of the surface navy. There is a, a theory or a thesis that the future of the surface navy is to become uh, the below surface navy because the marriage of uh, uh, ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, uh, with uh, better surveillance technologies means navy's surface big metal objects on the surface of the sea will be driven further and further ashore until they might as well be underwater. Um, so uh, I wonder if uh, I'm particularly interested in what the navy's view on that is. Uh, but uh, anybody else, uh, Eric uh, or Ben uh, or Chris, who uh, have views on that, we'll hear them too. I, when I was looking at the Navy's 30-year shipbuilding plan that, that came out a couple months back, that, that was one of the things that jumped out to me. If you look at the plan, your, your submarine fleet is actually getting smaller. It's shrinking. Whereas your surface fleet is increasing marginally. Your surface combatants increasing marginally. And I... A lot of the issues that, that, that you just said there, Ben, immediately came to my mind. We, you, you know, we have the Chinese with, with some of these guided musicians that basically look at our big carriers as, as giant targets. And if, if we're really meaningful talk, meaningfully talking about projecting force and controlling the seas, subs are great for taking out other subs and for taking out surface combatants. And it, it just, I, I would love to hear more from the Navy about why the decision to go away from subs in, in the 30-year plan, well, why we're doing that. Eric, you? I have nothing. Okay. There's, three, there's really three or four different type of schools of thought. The threat to surface vessels, the threat to any Navy vessel sailing the seas is unquestionably going up. As supersonic cruise missiles proliferate as anti-ship ballistic missiles. So that threat is definitely going up. So there's one school that says submerge the fleet. That is great if all you want is a fleet that's good for war fighting. But if you want a fleet that sails the oceans and operates forward to preserve the peace, a submarine really isn't the vessel to do that. A submarine is a war ship. Then there's those, like out at Naval Postgraduate School, called the New Navy Fighting Machine that says what you do is you take your packets of 90 big destroyers and you just atomize them, and maybe you buy three or 400 smaller ships. And you make the targeting problem for the bad guy very, very difficult. That's 
good in principle, and if we were going to design the fleet from a clean sheet of design, we might be able to do that. But in essence, we're going that way, but in a different, uh, in a different direction. We're actually going after unmanned systems and LCSs, et cetera. Then there's people who just say, go unmanned. On the sea, under the sea, over the sea. If you go unmanned, then these threats are manageable. But we're probably two decades at least away from something like that. And then the US Navy's position is what you try to do is you go after networking and you try to make your fleet more powerful through networking and allow it to compete. And also go after directed energy weapons and electromagnetic weapons, which allow you to fix the disparity between the enemy's magazine ashore and your relatively limited magazine at sea. We think we have, we can pursue that fourth path until it is time to make a second move. We just don't think it's re uh, there yet. As far as Ben's point, we haven't gone away from submarines. We have a requirement for 48. He is true that in the 20s, they start to dip, but that's a reflection of us just not building a lot of submarines in the 1990s. And we can't build our submarines fast enough to replace the four or five submarines that will retire each year. We are committed to 48. We will get to 48. Um, it's just we will go through that trough. If you take a look at the fleet, each of the fleet has a problem. The submarine has a problem in the 20s and the early 30s as we bottom out. The surface fleet has a bottom in the 30s as we can't buy enough in the 20s uh, to build the retirement, I mean, to offset the retirements. And the amphibious ships are hurting right now. So when you're trying to figure out how everything works together within a constrained budget, you can't have everything you want and you make trade-offs. So we're very, very committed to submarines. Uh, we just will go through a trough as we try to get out of it. Okay, uh, to audience questions, uh, please wait for the microphone uh, so that uh, everybody uh, hearing on TV, uh, watching on, on TV or on their computers can hear, um, and announce your name and affiliation and uh, try to end the question in a real question mark uh, rather than giving a speech. Who is first with the question? Uh, yes, sir, in the back middle. There he is. This uh, question's for Undersecretary Work, and no, sir, I'm not going to ask you about the LCS. <laughs> um, you've commented that we do not need frigates. I'm just curious. It seems to be there's some indicators that things might be changing that could change that in the next maybe five or ten years, and I'm wondering if you concur, and if, in fact, there is a decision with the environmental change with China, et cetera, that we do need frigates, we don't have them, what would we do in that contingency? And there's indicators that seem to be with the Asia-Pacific pivot, which is the vast size of the Pacific and the vast you know, blue water, uh, that you need blue water, long endurance, long dwell ships, that the LCS may maybe can't necessarily fill that role as a frigate. With, you know, with the Soviet model, with a large continental power, with global sea power ambitions, we see that, mo that model clearly with China. Uh, with an aspect of maritime commerce that, with, that could potentially be interdicted with China through the Malacca Strait with their energy dependence, et cetera, we see maybe another indicator that we might need to either interdict Chinese merchant shipping or protect our, our own commerce coming through the region. Uh, and also with the lessons of history, you know, the Battle of the Atlantic, two world wars were in fact protection of shipping were pretty critical missions and we, and we had to develop ship classes pretty fast to meet that requirement, the DEs, some of the ships you had in your slides. Um, Air-sea battle is the last one. With decentralized dispersed operations over a very vast area to try to counter the Chinese A2AD capabilities, it seems 
that all these indicators are leading to an era where, in fact, we may, in, we may need frigates. If we get to that point, what will we do when we get to that point? Well, again, this goes uh, back to fleet design and uh, frigates. I'll, the way I think of ships in the world is, this is we're in the guided munitions regime, and you count the number of what I call battle force missiles that are carried by the ship. Cruisers, destroyers, things like that, frigates, very hard to kind of delineate what it is. So for the, we have decided to build large, what I'll call large battle network combatants with 90 to 122 missile cells in them. Not too many other navies do that. We've overcapitalized. The 600-ship navy, we were building to the 600-ship navy. That was, a, that was a signpost for the mid-90s. At the high point of the 600-ship navy, we had 73 cruisers, guided missile cruisers and destroyers. 73. That was the 600-ship navy. Today, we have 84. We have said we're going to have a big top end, and that's where we put our money. If you're going to build frigates, I would argue that if you drop down to 75 frigates, I mean 75 big boys, cruisers and destroyers, large battle network combatants, and you wanted frigates, you wouldn't buy them out of the LCS tonnage. You'd buy them out of the big boy tonnage. And then you say, okay, for wartime, what are you going to get? You're going to get about 48 missiles. Well, what you need is something to escort your combat logistics for ships. The LCS originally was designed for its anti-submarine warfare module as a barrier platform. It was going to drop sensors and sit there on the sensor line and go after the enemy subs. We just looked at the ship to the Pacific, and we said, hey, we need to be able to escort our combat logistics force. Now the LCS will have a variable depth sonar with a multifunction towed array with a to torpedo alertment system on it with an MH-60R helicopter. It will be every bit as good of an ASW escort as the FIG-7 ever was. If we need to have add anti-air warfare capability to it, the ship at 3,000 tons has the margins to put on evolved Sea Sparrow missiles. So we have a lot of flexibility here. If we want frigates, or if we want escorts, we'd probably build up from the LCS line. If we wanted frigates, we'd probably build down from the cruiser line. You can mix and match any way you want. The real key about designing a fleet is having a lot of on-ramps and off-ramps. And I'll tell you right now, this, this fleet design, we have on-ramps, off-ramps. If the, we need to buy fewer carriers, we can go to large-deck amphibious uh, ships with JSF. We can do all sorts of things. So you want to have multi-mission, multi-role ships. You want to have a lot of on-ramps and off-ramps. And right now, we just don't need for his. Can I, can I not so much as a comment, but, but really a follow-on question, a question of range, Bob. I know that in the early stage, again, one and two, we were trying these things out. Can you just speak a little bit to the range, what you expect these ships to be able to, you know, the kind of the operational, the normal operational mode, how long can these things operate independent, uh, and, and how, how are you addressing that, that early, uh, I think, vulnerability? I think you would admit that was an early vulnerability. Yeah, I mean, this is a design that was made, the high speed of the ship. Uh, there's a healthy debate within the fleet on whether you need a ship with that high speed when you have helicopters and small interceptor boats that you can shove out of the back end. But that decision has been made. 
Now, on the normal speed range profile that this ship will operate on, it will be operating on diesels less than 15 knots. With that, it is, has more endurance than a FIG-7 because a FIG-7 has to light off a gas turbine. When you're operating on diesels, this ship is extremely economical. It's when you want to go 40-plus knots that you burn fuel fast. So it all depends on how you do this. Now, the next thing is, as Admiral Harvey said, I really want this ship to be able to close with a carrier strike group. That means its speed of advance, average speed of advance, has got to be about 16 knots. LCS-3, which is the follow-on from the uh, ship LCS-1 that Ben was talking about, has a six-foot extended transom, and it can get at least 16 knots on diesels, which means it should be able to keep up with the carrier strike group unless the carrier has to get somewhere with a hurry. And if that's the case, the LCS can go with it. It's just going to have to refuel a lot. It has 21 days' worth of provisions on board. It can be unrepped at sea, but generally what will happen is it will go out for about 21 days. And it can get into very small ports all over the world. So we think the LCS is going to operate forward. I'll tell you right now, we couldn't base four frigates in Singapore. We can base four LCSs. And those LCSs will operate out of Singapore, and with a 21-day endurance, they're going to be able to exert an enormous amount of presence and influence in that area. We're going to have aid in Bahrain, and we're looking for other places that we can base forward. So this ship, again, on-ramps, off-ramps, you have to think. It takes 4.56 ships to get one forward under a single crew system. Think about that for a second. You've got to buy nine ships, cruis cruisers and destroyers, to keep two forward at any given time. The LCS is designed for every one ship out of every two to be forward. So, sure, we have to prove it, but right now we think we can. Also, uh, I think Chris's point on uh, crew size is exactly right. This reminds me of the old FIG-7. The Manny document said it was going to be 185 sailors. We took it out to sea. Whoop, we were off. Took about 215. Now, we don't think that it's going to be a 50% bump, but I am certain that the core crew of the ship will be slightly uh, larger. So one of the key things we're thinking about doing is increasing the bunk size. The ship was designed to have three bunks. Only has two right now. Boy, it's really nice for the sailors aboard. But they'll have exactly the same if we go to three high bunks and you can have 100 people on the ship with no real problem. Okay. We're working that through. Okay. Next. Uh, the gentleman in the middle right here. Straight ahead. Phil Bozzelli. For years, uh, the LCS discussion has reminded me of my time as a earlier days in the Navy, both as a plebe and as a jailer in a wardroom, where the prayer was a magnet, someone to suck up the captain's attention or the upperclassman's attention so life could go on. <laughs> LCS has become, for the Navy, a magnet. If we took <laughs> LCS off the title, probably two-thirds of us wouldn't be here today. <laughs> Yet the arguments we hear against LCS are very different from what we've heard on the FFGs and on the DE-1052s. Why is that? And why is the Navy having such a hard problem getting LCS behind it? Can, can I actually start off by answering that question? Because listening to Bob today, and he probably would rather respond to me anyway, uh, I, I listening to him today, I, I think the Navy's got a real messaging problem on this right now. Because on the one hand, Bob says that 
The LCS is going to be ready to go into combat on day one. On the other hand, the CNO is telling me that he's not going to send it into a robust anti-access environment, which means it's not going into combat on day one because it's going to take quite a few days before you take down that anti-access network. So in that sense, the Navy has got, I think, really has got a, got a messaging problem on this issue. I mean, the LCSs are built to a level one survivability. Navy ships are built to three levels of survivability, level one, level two, level three. Level one traditionally has been logistics ships, level two have been amphibious ships, and level three would be your cruisers, destroyers, submarines, and aircraft carriers. If LCS is being built to level one survivability, it's, being, it's going to be escorting ships that we would not normally send into a combat environment, even though... Bob has stated that we're going to send them into a combat environment, uh, you know, on the day one of the conflict. And I think, you know, I, I really would like to get Bob's answer to this one because I think there is a serious disconnect between different parts of the Navy then on, on how this ship is going to operate in a wartime environment. Yeah, I think both of the uh, comments are spot on. Um, this ship is so different. It's so different than anything we've ever put to sea, Phil, and that's why the skepticism of the ship is so pronounced. You have to prove it. And on the waterfront, it's all in the Missouri frame of mind. you got to show me. <laughs> now, the sailors who run the ship, if you go out there and they'll say, what do you think about the ship? So we just sent uh, Admiral Roden and uh, Sean Stackley to LCS-1, sat down with the crew, tell us everything that's wrong. And essentially, big, big issue for them was crew size. Hey, we think the crew size ought to be a little bit bigger. Got it. They want a horizon range uh, weapon. Got it. We want one, too. When we lost the inlos, we kind of lost that, and now we're looking for a replacement. But there is a lot of skepticism in the fleet on the way we're going to man it, the way we're going to maintain it. And this is healthy skepticism. So we have to be able to show the fleet. And in the past, what's happening is, unfortunately, it's been the CNO and maybe the civilian leadership that has been really trumpeting the ship. But now, as the ship we have two at sea, and people are starting to see it, you're starting to see a change on the waterfront. And they're saying, okay, if we do this to the ship, we can do this. And that's what happens whenever we go in. Now, we're over the hump yet. We still have a, a messaging problem. And one of them is what the CNO was talking about when he was talking about the anti-access area denial system. He was asked a specific question about the Western Pacific. What he was saying is you weren't going to send the LCS into the Western Pacific, the high-end port of that battle network. It would be operating as a combat logistics force ship escort. So it would still be in combat, but it would not be in that high-end system. We're going to have eight LCSs in the Gulf. If the war went down on that day, they're inside the environment. They would go out and they would start seeking fast attack craft and fast inshore attack craft because that's what they're built for, or they'd go out to try to sweep mines. They're going to be in the fight. It's a level one plus survivability ship. It's got more survivability features on it than a combat logistics force ship. It's designed to operate under a battle network. And if it finds itself against an opponent that outguns it, like any ship, ever since the navies have been born, it's going to have a problem. But for the three missions it is currently designed for, fighting against fast attack craft and fast inshore attack craft, for fighting against diesel submarines, and for fighting against mines, it's going to be more well-armed than any of the ships that are currently doing that mission now. So you have to look at it in terms of fleet design and what the ship brings to the fleet. Okay, uh, let's go in the back, uh, on the middle, uh, on the aisle. 
Thanks. Hi, Vagam Ranian from uh, Defense News. Um, I, uh, ba uh, Secretary Work, if I may, um, ask you to follow up on something that uh, Chris uh, just said. Regarding the supportability of the ship, I mean, originally the Navy likes to have as much commonality in its warships as it can. We moved away from that, obviously, because we now allow the contractors to do more, which is why uh, Secretary Winter complained about you know, sub-sub-sub-classes of ships having all sorts of different components in the supply system and how much stress that was putting on it. How are we not going to get into a situation where you have two distinct classes, two completely different sets of machinery? Um, I know the combat system harmonization initiative is underway, but that's still a bit out. Are we going to get into a position on these ships where you're going to have freedom class guys and independence class guys, just like we had with, with the MCMs for a long time, which were you know, subordinate and totally separate classes that just sort of look similar. Thanks. Well, first of all, like I said, this is a learning Navy. If you take, back, if you take a look at our history and you see some of the things we bought and we said, whoop, that wasn't the right thing and we are more than willing to say we made a mistake. One advantage of having two in production right now is if one of the two ships turns out to have more problems than we inspect, you have another option and you single up. But let's assume, because we do, assume that both ships are going to be able to perform the missions and both of them are going to be able to perform them well. The LCS-2 has an enormous capability as far as aviation. It's probably got a little stronger skill set there. The LCS-1 is really our swarm killer, much more maneuverable, more, you could put a 76 millimeter on that uh, steel hull if you wanted to. You know, you have all sorts of different options. So we like having two options right now. If we built two 27 ship classes, that's more than enough to be able to sustain uh, many of the ship classes we've operated before. The Charles Adams class, 23 ships, nine Leahy's, nine Belknaps. Um, you know, usually we don't have ships classes bigger than 27. And what we'll focus on is combat systems, uh, commonality, C4I systems, commonality, weapon systems, commonality, and once you get that, then the only thing you're really looking at is the HM&E, the whole machinery and electrical uh, differences. And we'll see. We'll see. It may turn out that it will be better to single up to one, but that's not our plan right now. Ooh, a lot of questions. Uh, let's go right in the front, sir. Uh, Robbie Harris, a uh, former naval person and Lockheed Martin. I think it's fair, uh, listening to the panelists this morning, to say that Eric Lab, Bob Work, and Chris Preble are of the view that there really isn't a, an alternative to LCS. If that's the case, and I believe it is, then going forward, what should be Navy's priorities with respect to LCS? How does Navy get beyond these criticisms that have been raised, given the fact that this is the ship that Navy's going to buy? What should be the priorities going forward? with respect to LCS? Well, I would, I would certainly probably agree that we're going to have a bunch of LCSs around. I think we're going to have at least a minimum of 24. I think come, uh, you know, 2015, in anticipation for the budget, you know, for the budget of that year that we're going to have, the Navy's going to have another decision point. Do they continue with the LCS program? And if they continue with the LCS program, how do they continue? Do they continue both types of ships or just one? Um, contrary to sort of, you know, maybe people didn't realize in the audience, the Navy has gone through 
uh, multiple swings on the LCS program. It was originally going to be a down select um, back in the early 2000s. Then they were going to keep building both types around for a long time to keep competition. Then they changed the acquisition strategy to go back to a down select program again. And then in December of 2010, when the two 10 ship con, you know, block buys came, bids came in, they were so attractive to the Navy, they decided to go back and, and change the strategy at the last minute to, to maintain both lines. The Navy's got a wide set of options open to it starting in 2015. So I, for one thing, I would say that I'm, I don't think the, the Navy necessarily has to continue with the LCS program after, the, after that point. They'll have 24 ships at that point, and they can decide whether they want to you know, fill out to 55 or whether they want, after experimenting with it in the fleet, as Bob has said, and that's something the Navy's going to have to do, whether they then need to do something else. Do they need to do modified LCS design, a little bit larger, a little bit smaller? Do they need to do a, a whole new design of a, of a frigate-sized ship? Um, and I agree with Bob that a frigate-sized ship is not going to be cheaper than an LCS. Um, it's going to be cheaper than an Arleigh Burke destroyer, but it's not going to be cheaper than an LCS. So. Um, I would, I would say that the, 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 my answer would be, and I would hope that the Navy's answer would be at this point, is that they don't know. They have to get it out to the fleet to, to, to work with it for a while and see how it works and what they can do with it and what they can't, and then make appropriate changes or you know, different off-ramps, as Bob has suggested, for the future. That would be my view of it. Robbie, um, I don't think it's true that I've, I've resigned myself yet. <laughs> Uh, We're to, on you, you are working on me. Uh, <laughs> resign myself yet to the inevitability of this, especially the inevitability of 55. Okay, I think I am, I have been concerned about the dual buy strategy of two very different ships. I, I think Bob put it on the table correctly. This is two 27 ship classes, not one ship class. And I think it is not unreasonable for. Uh, those of us who are concerned about about the cost to question why the down select was not executed the way it was supposed to be uh, and to re and to revisit that okay um, and the, the under just said um, it is not their intention to single up but we recognize that might be an option in the future and I think that that would be my my statement as well it's a question of where at what point do you choose to single up and what criteria do you use for assessing which of these two ships, and again, they have different advantages. If you singled up, which one, which advantage would you privilege over the other? And then what would you build in lieu of the other vessel? Um, you know, let me be clear, when I talk about an alternative, it said, you know, Eric and, and Bob both seem to agree that a frigate-sized ship isn't cheaper, um, okay, um, that may be true. I'm not entirely convinced of that, but I'm, I'm willing to accept that. So maybe I'm not talking about a frigate-sized ship. Maybe I'm talking about a Corvette-sized ship. Now, Bob's point is that a Corvette-sized ship, 1,500, 2,000 tons, um, is so unpopular in the Navy culturally that they've had such difficulty uh, dealing with a small warship uh, that it just wouldn't buy in. And then his argument, well, the reason why we fixed on a 3,000-plus ton is because, well, at least you'd get buy-in by the fleet. Well, with all due respect, the fleet is adaptable, and the fleet can be convinced of the merit of a, small, a smaller vessel if the alternative is a less, you know, a less capable vessel that's twice as expensive and twice as large. Um, so I'm not, I'm not giving up on the question. Obviously, obviously not, or else we wouldn't have had this discussion in the first place. I think it's still worth asking the question, can we develop an alternative 
And in the meantime, this is also key, in the meantime, could we experiment with keeping the, the remaining uh, Perry-class frigates in service slightly longer, extend them in service, you know, spend a couple hundred million dollars even to keep them in service a little bit longer to buy us time to develop an alternative. That's what we talk about in the, in the proposal that Ben Friedman and I put on the table. Ben, did you have anything? Yeah, I, I, I even, in spite of all my criticism of the LCS, I, I, I am actually a fan of, of, of this mission, of, uh, of going forward, of, of getting into those anti-access areas. So, you, you, you know, you, you can temper my criticisms with that, too. I'm not, I'm, I'm not opposed to this mission. I just think that the, I think I would agree with Chris on this, the dual buy is still an issue for me. I'm not, I'm not convinced we need two very different variants to to do this mission, though I do think it is a, it, it's a very important mission. And, and, and the inflection points we're talking about right now, issues with Iran, um, Strait of Hormuz, and then that's why I use the example that I did. Those are incredibly valuable areas and we need to make sure that, that we have access to those areas. And, and, and so I, I'm a fan of the mission, even if I am an, an, an ardent critic of the LCS in general, LCS-1. For me, um, think of the JSF program. For the longest time, we convinced ourselves that this was one single aircraft with three different kind of missions. And we got ourselves into a lot of trouble because it is three different aircraft. The F-35B is as different from the F-35A as LCS-2 is from LCS-1. They kind of look the same. They look a lot more the same than LCS-1 and LCS-2, but that is an entirely different aircraft. So. Yes, we, for the longest time, we said maybe we should just single up. But when you take a look at the advantages of both of these vessels, you say, wow, maybe over time the LCS-2 becomes the Pacific ship. Long legs, long legs. The LCS-2 has no problem with endurance. Huge aviation capacity. Maybe it's going to be the uh, Pacific ship. The LCS-1, small, maneuverable, can get into any port you can think of in Latin America or Africa. Great swarm killer very maneuverable, steel hull, so if you want to upgun, you can. So having these two different ships right now, we believe, is a tremendous advantage. Now, if I, I, I do say that 3,000 tons makes the ship more uh, acceptable to the fleet, but the reason why CNO chose 3,000 tons is it was the smallest ship that could operate two MH60-sized helicopters. That was the limiting design. <coughs> And if you want this ship, what do you need in the literals? You need rubber, rigid hulled, inflatable boats, unmanned systems, and helicopters. That's what you need. And that's what this ship brings to the fight. And if you need to upgun it to a frigate, then it can, be, it can carry two MH-60s very, very easily. So 3,000 tons was kind of the lower limit of the mission that we wanted, but it also made it easier to sell. To Robbie's questions, here are the six things we have to do. The first thing we do is we have to address the issues that Ben brought up. There's 62 issues. We think we have uh, uh, answers to every single one. There's going to be more issues that we find. But get Hull 1 and Hull 2 right and get those fixes into the production run, first thing. Second thing, get the core crew size right. We know we're probably too low. We've got to figure that out. Three, single up the combat systems and the C4I systems. If you do that, now you become totally interoperable inside the fleet and you solve a lot of your problems. Four, make sure the mission modules work. As things fall out of the mission modules or we come on, the beauty of this ship is you can make the changes relatively quickly. 
got to prove to the guys on the waterfront that the maintenance and the manning scheme that we have will work. And we won't be able to do that till we get a couple more in the fleet. And the final thing is, like Admiral Harvey says, let's not just talk or think about the three mission modules this ship has now. Let's think about all the other mission modules that it might be able to carry on board. Think of it more as an evolutionary two-stage system. If we get those six things right, then the Navy's going to go all in. If we get only four of them right, there's going to be a lot of skepticisms and questions. If we get none of them right, we're not going to build a ship. So we're confident that we can solve all six of these things, but we've got to prove it. Can I just amplify one on those six things? I think the key oversight issue for Congress is the mission modules. Okay, that's the, in my mind, the number one question which needs to be addressed. When are they going to be delivered? How much are they going to cost? What is the capability? Are they interoperable? Truly interoperable. Can you take one of these and take it from LCS-1 and put it on LCS-2 and vice versa? Those are the key questions. And also that factors into cost because we talk a lot about the baseline cost of the structure, but you've got to factor in the mission modules. These ships aren't what they are sold as if you don't count the mission modules. So that to me is the, of the six, and I would agree with all the other five that Bob mentioned, that to me is the critical one. Uh, we're just going to have to triage here. So let's grab three questions and then uh, we'll have, hopefully they'll be quick and then we'll have a uh, quick answer. So we'll go over there, the gentleman in the middle in the blue, and then the gentleman up here and uh, the rest of you, unfortunately, will have to um, ask after if you can. Hello, Bruce Stubbs. We've had a lot of talk about uh, the Navy using NSCs. What about the other way around? The NSC costs uh, $750 million. Um, it's going to have its own independent uh, logistics system, its own independent training system. This is an institution uh, looking at uh, leveraging uh, uh, stewardship of uh, U.S. taxpayer dollars. Why doesn't the uh, Coast Guard uh, use the, uh, the LCS and buy into the Navy's logistics system, buy into the Navy's training system, and uh, get, get more bang for the dollar that way? Okay, right down here. Briefly, to follow up, you were talking about off-ramps, and then you brought up the example of the JSF. If resources are the considering uh, the main factor here instead of capacity, you solve all the problems, but resource constraints start to step, stair step down, how will you solve the issue if you don't have the resources to purchase what's necessary for your requirements? Basically, do you have the analysis in place to support the off-ramp or the alternatives that the other individuals were bringing up? And finally, right here. Otto Kreischer with Sea Power Magazine. Following on that issue, Eric Lab, Ron O'Rourke, and GAO all have said the Navy doesn't ha won't have the money it needs for the shipbuilding plan that it has put forward. You know, so the question is, you know, what do you really need to buy, and what will you buy if uh, if it comes out to be you know you're several billion dollars short of what you need on an annual basis? I'm going to, I'll just take a shot at uh, Bruce Stubbs' question. I'll let defer to others on the other two. Um, I wrote a report a couple years ago that looked at that very question. And at that time, circumstances would suggest that the Coast Guard would not have been interested in the LCS because it would have been much more expensive for its offshore patrol cuddle than it, than it wanted and wouldn't have the range and the endurance that it's, that it's looking for in that program. But the evolutions in the LCS program, assuming we sort of get the fixes right that, that Bob Work is talking about and the, the, the problems that uh, uh, Ben has pointed out, it might be worth a look again from from the Coast Guard's point of view because if you can do 16 knots and get yourself the you know 
you know, get yourself six, 6,000, 7,000 uh, nautical mile range, um, which is what the LCS would have. And you're talking about, you know, now a $400 million, $450 maybe million dollar platform. Um, I think it would be worthwhile for the Coast Guard to at least sort of reinvestigate this question for themselves and answer to their own satisfaction whether it can still meet their requirements or not. Okay. I'm going to defer that one. I'll give it a try. <clears throat> First of all, I don't, uh, the LCS, uh, I think the Coast Guard right now is struggling very mightily to get their uh, seventh and eighth national security cutter into their budget. They have an even more difficult time, I think, uh, right now than we do. Uh, and then they have what is called the offshore patrol cutter, or the medium security cutter. I don't know exactly what it's called now. Uh, but they have that, that decision facing them. And it may turn out that the LCS is an option for them, but I can't speak for the Coast Guard, of course. Um, but they have a very, very tight budget. And once we get this vessel into serial production, the 10th ship coming off the, of each of the lines is going to be an extremely, extremely cost-effective ship. And if you derated the ship, put 2500 LM2500s on it instead of the big gas turbines, if you only had to go 27 knots, these LCSs would get a lot of range. So it's up to the Coast Guard to make that decision. On the resources, we just went through one of the biggest um, strategic changes, in my view. Uh, some people look in the 1990s. I actually think there's nothing like this since 1953, 1954, when President Eisenhower came in was faced with a war in Korea, needed to get out of the war to balance the budget, uh, and he made some major, major changes. If you take a look back on what we just did, essentially the prioritization, if the implicit, if you read the strategy and the prioritization is, this is the most maritime-friendly national security strategy document since the 1890s. That's my view. If you read this national security priority, you cannot execute this strategy without a strong Navy Marine Corps team. Now, if the resources are cut dramatically from where we are, we'd have to relook at the assumptions we made. But we will get to 90 cruisers and uh, cruiser, uh, C CGs and DDGs. We have 62 Arleigh Burks right now. We'll be able to build the other 10 between now and 2016. Not an issue. We're going to finish up the three DDG 1000s. We have 22 Ticonderoga-class CGs that we're probably going to uh, take down to 15. We're going to have 90 of these big boys. And the LCS is in serial production, coming down the cost curve like you wouldn't believe. Both of the builders are just doing remarkably well. So we're going to get to 300 ships by 2019, no matter what. Your questions are, what happens over the long run? Man, you know, I, t I say this all the time. People say, how do you sleep? I sleep like a baby. I wake up crying every two hours. <laughs> I can't look out and say, what about what's going to happen? The only thing I can say is we are prioritizing now. We're starting to break away from the one-third, one-third, one-third split. The Department of the Navy is definitely of a higher priority in our national security strategy than it has been in decades. So if we take more cuts, I would expect more prioritization to occur and the Department of the Navy uh, to be able to build to its 300-ship Navy. I could be totally dreaming. Uh, so what would we buy? I'm telling you right now, we're buying the right stuff. We've got the best cruiser and destroyer in the world. It's going to be better when we get the Flight 3 with the Advanced Missile Defense Radar. The LCS is unlike anything floating out there, and I'm convinced it's going to be really something. 
the Virginia is the best SSN in the world, hands down. The LPD-17, for all of its problem, the best amphibious ship, hands down. There's nothing like the WASP-class uh, LHDs or the LHARs. You take a look at the ships we're building, the TAKEs. Every single one of them are the best in the world. So what would I buy? I'd continue to buy what we're doing. Now, if you drop my top line, I would come back to you and say, I've got to have a different plan. But I'm telling you right now, the surface Navy has a very, very bright future. There's a lot of people who would like more ships. I think we all would. But the plan that we're on right now, we think we can afford, and we think it's just what the nation needs. All right. Well, uh, thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, please join me in thanking our speakers. And, uh...